Welcome to Questions That Matter, a podcast of the C.S. Lewis Institute. I'm your host, Randy Newman, and today my conversation partner is Michael Ward. Michael, welcome to Questions That Matter. Thank you, Randy. Good to be with you. I should tell our our listeners, uh, Michael is a senior research fellow at Blackfriars Hall at the University of Oxford and also a professor of apologetics at Houston Baptist University. Uh, He's the author of the award-winning book, Planet Narnia, The Seven Heavens in the Imagination of C.S. Lewis, and he's the author of a brand new book, After Humanity, a guide to C.S. Lewis's book, The Evolution of Man. That's going to be the topic of our conversation. Um, but uh, Michael, tell us just a little bit, because I think my our, our listeners might wonder, what is Blackfriars uh, Hall? What is that about? Yes, Blackfriars is one of the constituent uh, colleges at the University of Oxford. Well, to give it its strict terminology, it's one of the constituent halls. Um, there are halls and colleges that make up the University of Oxford, about 40 of them in total. Um I think most Americans won't be familiar with the collegiate constitution of a, of a university, but that's how Oxford and Cambridge are formed. And so um, each college has its own fellows and, and does its own admissions and formally grants degrees. And the university is a sort of nebulous, epiphenomenal, ectoplasmic manifestation which arises from the colleges. Um, but whether it really exists is a, is a matter of great debate. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, <laughs> well, I don't know whether that helped our listeners be more impressed or less impressed. Um, but um, we're we're just we're we Americans we're just always impressed with things related to Oxford and Cambridge, and so, um, um, so I won't I won't ask any more questions. I I will tell our listeners Michael has um, uh, lectured for us about Planet Narnia and other things about Lewis's life when we've done our Belfast Oxford study tours and uh, has really been a great contribution for us. So, Lord willing, we're going to be able to start those tours again. We sure hope so. We had to curtail them with COVID, um, but it'd be great to have have you again on uh, some of those trips and uh, lecturing for us. Um but let's dive into this book that you've just come out with about uh, Lewis's The Abolition of Man. The Abolition of Man, I think, is it's many people say this. It's, it's one of Lewis's most important books, and yet it may be one of his most difficult. It is a difficult book to read. So can um, and for those who haven't read it, can you give us kind of an intro to it or maybe an overview of, of what it's about? Yes, it is a difficult book by Lewis's standards because uh, he's usually so extremely accessible and lucid. And, you know, he's not impenetrable here. It, it's still, by, by by the standards of professional philosophical discourse, it's it's very uh, very amenable to um, an easy read. But, but still, that being said, it's relatively hard going. Um, it's about the subject of um, objective value. And it originated as a series of lectures that Lewis gave during the Second World War. Uh, at the University of Durham, not at Oxford, as it happens. It's partly a defense of objective value, but it's also a a forecast. It's a, it's a prophecy, really, about what might happen, what very probably will happen if, if, if a subjectivist approach to ethics is uh, adopted. It will lead, Lewis says, to a kind of, uh, well, give the title of the, of the book. It, it will 
lead to the abolition of our humanity. It will be an erasure of our true identity as moral creatures. Because um, he has this picture of of man in three sections, head, belly, and chest. The head rules the belly through the chest, he says. From the head upwards, we're, we're spiritual, we're rational, we're like the angels, or just possibly like the demons. Um, from the belly downwards, we're like the animals. But in the chest, we have this liaison officer between the rational side of us and the appetitive or sensual side of us. And it's this chest, this middle region, which, is, which constitutes our humanity. And if we don't, but if we don't accept the objectivity of value, um, if we try to imagine that we can create our own moral values, then we will have effectively uh, collapsed the head and the chest. Sorry, the the head and the belly into one. There'll no longer be this uh, liaison officer between the two, um, and will either, as a result, descend into animality or will evaporate up into pure spirituality, which is not necessarily a good thing because we are meant to be rational animals. We're not meant to be like the angels. And if we try to be like the angels, we'll very probably end up like the devils. Mm. So that in, 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 in a crude summary is what the abolition of man is about. But it's a lot more sophisticated than that, of course. And uh, if, you're, if our listeners haven't ever read it, um, a, a good way to get into it actually is is not through uh, just plunging straight in, but I would recommend instead that re- re- listeners read the first four chapters of the of Mere Christianity. That's a kind of popularized, much more accessible version of the of the same set of arguments. Or his his essay, The Poison of Subjectivism, or another essay he wrote on ethics. All of these are tackling the same sorts of issues, but from slightly different angles, with a, with a different and a slightly more accessible register. Oh, that's really very helpful. I was I was going to ask you about how do you recommend people get into it. So that's right. Mere Christianity were a series of uh, radio broadcasts for a very popular audience, not necessarily and certainly not an academic audience. But these lectures, these three lectures that make up the Abolition Man, that that those were academic lectures in an academic setting. Um, there's there's three lectures. The first one's called Men Without Chests. And the second one's called The Way. And then the third one is The Abolition of Man. And you say in your guide, um, let's see, um, if if chapter one was the checkup and chapter two the diagnosis, chapter three is the prognosis, and it does not make for comfortable reading. <laughs> um, sorry, I don't know why I'm laughing. I have, uh, it, It's really true. I, it, I I've often thought as I've read it or reread it, I thought, oh, how I wish he was wrong. Um, but but he's so very right and and uh, current, becoming more and more relevant in our time than maybe even when he when he delivered these addresses. I don't know. I mean, he was so prophetic and looking ahead. Um, can you say a little bit more about his phrase, uh, men without chests? What what what? What's involved there? You've already touched on it a little bit, but I wonder if you can say some more. Yes, well, the, the importance of this chest, uh, this this philosophical uh, component of our nature, which which um, connects our rational side with our sensual, passionate side. This chest is is the place where we stabilize our sentiments. Um, 
a lot of a lot of what Lewis is attacking really arises from a from a suspicion of, of about sentiments and emotion that you know emotions are bad, feelings are are incapable of being in any sense true. Um, we must rely exclusively upon a very kind of cerebral and bodiless sort of logic. But that's that's a that's a dehumanizing uh, attitude to strike. We shouldn't be afraid of emotions. We should only be afraid of unreasonable or irrational emotions. But emotions are not outside the the bounds of rationality. They just need to be, as it were, um, well, stabilized. That's 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 the word Lewis uses, and they're stabilized by. Um, the practice of the virtues by by the generation of a stable moral character. Um, so the chest is the place of just and civilized sentiments um, so that we can integrate our, our rational side and our feeling side. Because Lewis in his early years had, had felt himself very sort of um, polarized. He talked about the two hemispheres of his mind being in the sharpest contrast to each other. But on the one side, he he faced a world of facts without one trace of value. But on the other side, he he faced a world of feelings without one trace of truth or falsehood. And this polarization or opposition between the world of fact and the world of value is what he's trying to overcome um, by 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 talking about this central organ, if you like, which is the chest, which which liaises between the, the factual head and the feeling belly. Hmm. Hmm. And you know, he 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 didn't just believe that. He really lived that out and and his writings engage both the head um, and the heart. I mean I, that's how I think of the head and the imagination. Um, we talk about uh, discipleship of the heart and mind. Um, he 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 didn't just resist, but he fought back against this idea that we're going to put these in two separate categories and and they're not connected. Um, um, do you want to deliver uh, my favorite line of the book, or would you allow I, 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 his statement about men without chests? I think it's just one of the most profound in the whole entire book. But I was thinking, well, I, I really want to read that. But then I thought, well, that, that's not fair to Michael because it's such a good line. But do you know what I'm talking about? And would you like to deliver it? What is it? The line about the geldings? Yes. Okay. Yeah, this is the very end of the first chapter of The Abolition of Man. Uh, and I'm just turning to it in my copy of the book. Um, he starts with, in a sort of ghastly simplicity... Yes, in a sort of ghastly simplicity, we remove the organ and demand the function. We make men without chests and expect of them virtue and enterprise. We laugh at honour and are shocked to find traitors in our midst. We castrate and bid the geldings be fruitful. I just think that's just one of the most... Um, uh, once you see it, once you read it, and once you get it, you, then, then you see it so many places, and it becomes increasingly disturbing. Um, you know, for years, I was involved with um, faculty ministry uh, on university campuses, 
And um, a, a, a building theme over the years was um, professors growing in horror and, and, and dismay that students um, lied and, uh, and, and stole uh, information and, uh, you know, quoted without giving um, attribution and um, uh, plagiarizing and not showing up to class. And, and yet at the same time, this, the universities were also teaching the students that there's no such thing as right and wrong. There's no such thing as truth. Everyone makes up their own morals. And yet people were, were horrified that when they made up their own morals, their morals said, I don't have to come to class. I don't have to do assignments. Um, I remember one student who was involved in, in our work was, was told by a professor gave this long lecture about words can words have no meaning in and of themselves. Word, words only mean the meaning we attribute to them. And the student raised her hand and said, does that apply to the words in the syllabus as well? And does that apply to the assignments that are due? Or can I attribute the meaning of nothing is due and I don't have to come to class? Um, uh, but, but so again, Lewis is we, we remove the organ and demand the function. That's what men without chests. And, and what he's saying is it's, it's the whole education system that has created this, this monster. Mm-hmm. Yes, absolutely. And he gives he gives very amusing but terrible fictional expression to that idea in one of the Narnia Chronicles, The Silver Chair, mm. which uh, starts out at a, at a very um, modern co-educational school, which has imbibed very thoroughly this subjectivist approach to ethics. Um, I'll just read you a couple of sentences because it speaks exactly to what you just described. This school was co-educational, a school for both boys and girls, what used to be called a mixed school. Some said it was not nearly so mixed as the minds of the people who ran it. These people had the idea that boys and girls should be allowed to do what they liked. And unfortunately, what 10 or 15 of the biggest boys and girls liked best was bullying the others. (laughs) (laughs) So, yes, of course, as soon as you say it's a free-for-all, morally speaking, what do you get? You get uh, the law of the jungle, uh, and uh, right is replaced by might. Um, And this is precisely what Lewis is arguing in the third chapter of Men Without Chests, where he, or really throughout, uh, sorry, the third third chapter of Abolition of Man, and really throughout the whole book, uh, that... He, he quotes the old uh, Roman satirist uh, Juvenal, who says, uh, this I will, so I command, let my will take the place of reason. Mm. He, he, he quotes the Latin. Uh, mm. I, explain, so I explain it in English in my guide, um, as I do all sorts of Greek and French phrases as well. Um, will power replaces practical moral reason if value is not objective. If everything is subjective, then we still have passions and desires, and we still want to be thought to be right and wrong, but we will now have no rational basis for a cert- for you know arguing to, to a position of right and wrong. Um, so all we can do is assert our views and shout down those who disagree with us. The hmm. idea that we could ever have any sort of rational discourse about moral value leading to genuine free persuasion 
to take on a new position, that just goes out the window. If you've ever talked to uh, financial planners, they tell you how important, important it is to diversify your portfolio, to have investments in stocks and bonds and different kinds of stocks, growth and value stocks, and different kinds of bonds, short-term, medium, long-term bonds. And uh, a friend of mine who does a great deal of uh, consulting for people about finances talks about people also need to have a, a diverse portfolio of their giving, the giving portfolio, and where they give some of the money that God has uh, provided for them to their church, but then also to ministries outside their church. And then within that, a variety of different ministries. So some ministries are very much evangelizing parts of the world where people have never heard the gospel. Some are ministries of mercy, providing food and shelter and clothing for people who need them, and a whole wide range of different kinds of ministries. And I, I found that to be fascinating. And I think it's worth looking at our budget and see the side that talks about giving and diversify within that. And probably the, the quadrant or the segment in the chart that needs particular attention are the ones that don't seem the most crucial or pressing in the short run, but in the long run, they're incredibly important, like ministries of discipleship, like what we do at the C.S. Lewis Institute. So uh, we hope you'll prayerfully consider becoming a, a supporter or increasing your financial support of our ministry. Please visit our website, cslewisinstitute.org, and click the button that says donate. We'd love it if you could be a partner with us. And Lewis saw this and wrote this in the 1940s. Uh, was, it, was it during World War II that he wrote this? Yes. Uh, he delivered these lectures in February 1943. So, yeah, right slap bang in the middle of the Second World War. And you say in your book, though, that, that World War I may have played more of a part in Lewis's formulating these ideas. Can you, can you say more about that? Yes, well, of course, um, you know, by the time the Second World War came about, Lewis was pretty much in his middle age, uh, his, and he had, you know, formulated most of his basic ideas about right and wrong um, some decades earlier. And so I, I point out that it's often said that if you want to understand a figure from the past, a good question to ask is what was going on in the world when he was 20 and when C.S. Lewis was 20, the First World War was just coming to an end. Indeed, the armistice was signed in the very month that Lewis turned 20, in November mm. 1918. Mm. Um, and three, nearly three quarters of a million British servicemen had been killed in the First World War. Lewis himself had been very nearly one of them. He, had a, he was blown up by a, a shell that... Uh, that an, annihilated the man next to him and very nearly killed him. He had a sort of almost out-of-body experience and thought that he was dead. Um, one of his close friends was killed, Paddy Moore. And because of Paddy Moore's death, the whole course of Lewis's life was changed. Lewis had promised Moore that if the worst should happen, that he, Lewis, would look after Paddy's mother and sister. And so after Paddy was killed, Lewis kept his promise and went on to live with these two women, Jane, the mother, and Maureen, the sister, for, for the next several decades. Um, so 
I mention this because in The Abolition of Man, he argues that a real, the, the, the crucial test of the objectivity of value is death for a good cause. Hmm. And that's where he quotes the, the, the Roman poet Horace, dulce et decorum est pro patria mori. It's sweet and seemly to die for one's country. And this is the crucial test of the objectivity of value because for as long as doing the right thing sits well with us, for as long as it's convenient and easy, uh, it's it's hard to tell whether it's truly objective or not. It, it it might be just, you know, advantageous to us. It might just be in accord with our private preferences and whims. But as soon as we have to do something which we don't actually want to do, like fight for our country and possibly suffer and die for our country, uh, well, then we begin to realize that actually we are we are according to uh, an objective reality outside ourselves, which is which is more than just an internal projection upon to onto external reality. So when Lewis talks about death for a good cause being the, the crucial test of the objectivity of value, he's he's not just theorizing, he's drawing upon some crucial early experiences mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. as a young man that, that he had himself as a young officer in the British Army and which he saw taken to the, you know, the, the absolute nth degree in the case of his friend Paddy. So one of the one of the nice things, one of the things I'm proudest about in this new guide that I've produced is I, I found a photograph. It's the only photograph of Lewis in uniform when he was a, a young cadet in the British Army. And although this photograph has been published before, once or twice, uh, nobody has ever identified in the photograph Paddy Moore, who's standing oh, a few right. figures along from C.S. Lewis. Mm-hmm. And I, I point out Paddy Moore, and it's it's rather moving to see this photograph of the two men uh, and one will be dead within the year, mm-hmm. um, and the other's life will be completely changed as a result of that death. Right, right. So, um, you know, behind all this philosophizing, there's a lot of, you know, blood, sweat, and tears. There, there's an existential component to Lewis's argument in The Abolition of Man, which is one of the reasons I think that it, it has such sort of moral authority and it, and it strikes us as as being truly important because it was truly important to C.S. Lewis. Well, you do include a whole bunch of photographs, and that that just adds a great deal of depth, I think. To you know, you you read parts about what people said, and then oh, here's a photo of the person. Um, I I got the idea that in the process of writing or doing the research for this book, um, you came across some things that were like new discoveries. Well, just like you just said now. A, a rare photograph of Lewis in uniform, uh, the first time we see a photo of, of Patty Moore. Were there, were there other things that kind of came along that were surprises to you? Yes, a, a number of things, um, including, mo- most pleasingly, L- Lewis's original blurb for The Abolition of Man, hmm. which, which had never been published before and which nobody seemed to, to know about. Hmm. It's it's located in the archives of the University of Durham, where Lewis gave the original lectures. And mm. it, it would appear that even the great and late, alas, Walter Hooper, who died in December, God rest him, um, and who has done so much to you know promote the study of C.S. Lewis over the last 50-odd years, even Walter Hooper, I think, had never actually gone to the University of Durham and looked at the archives there. Um so that's entirely new, and I was able to get permission from the C.S. Lewis estate to to publish this little paragraph in Lewis's own handwriting. 
uh, and include that in the photo gallery, along with you know the original poster that Durham University put put mm. out to advertise right. Lewis's talks and and any number of other interesting things. I, I, I for my own <laughs> for my own money, the best thing about the book is the pictures. I, I'm rather like Alice in Wonderland, you know. Says what what is the use of a book without pictures? <laughs> now, now I had decided not to make a statement like that because that that would be like uh, uh, in, insulting on my part as an interviewer. Say, "Ooh, look, there's pictures." But the, let let the listeners note it was the author, the man in Oxford, who said, "Ooh, I like the pictures." Um, <laughs> speaking of pictures, by the way, when I was in Oxford, I went into um, um, oh, what's the bookstore there? Blackwell's. Yeah, Blackwell's. Blackwell's bookstore. And um, um, and I don't know why I gravitate towards C.S. Lewis sections in bookstores because I, I already have so many books. I, I, I can't imagine I'm going to see, ooh, I hadn't seen this one. Um, but I, I gravitate anyway, and I, and I saw a copy of The Abolition of Man, and it had a cover on that I had never seen before. And maybe in the UK, they published them with the different covers or whatever, but but this picture, uh, a photograph on the cover of the book, I don't know if you've seen this, of the Abolition Man, it's a photograph of a dog mm. wearing a hat and scarf. Mm. And I, I, it was just so shocking to see it. I thought, what a crazy mm. picture. I mean, it's, it's a very, very fancy hat and a very, very nice quality scarf around this dog who's just staring at you in the picture. And I thought, oh, that's brilliant. That's just brilliant. Mm. Because Lewis's point is, if we keep going down this subjective route, we will abolish humanity. And, and the title of your book is After Humanity. And and what we're doing is we're, we're equating ourselves with dogs. And in our day, people do dress up their dogs with fancy clothes mm. and treat their dogs with greater dignity than they give to their fellow human beings. So so it was it was funny. It was arresting. And then like a bitter pill of, oh, mm. oh, I wish I oh, oh, I wish they wouldn't have done that. Or, or again, coming back to, oh, I, I wish Lewis was wrong. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. No, I agree. I, I do know that that cover. It's one of my favorite cover designs for the abolition of man, because it's <laughs> as you say, it's on the on you know first glance, it's almost funny. It's the sort of thing children might do to dress up a pet. But when you when you understand it in the context of Lewis's argument, it's very very far from funny. It's tragic, um, and as you say, yes, it, it's it's as it's it's to suggest that if we erase the objectivity of value, we're we're no better than dogs, but of course, the other side of the picture is that if we erase the objectivity of value, we're we're trying to make ourselves gods, mm -hmm. dogs and gods. Um, they're sort of mirror images of each other, and we are mm. not called to be gods. We are called to be human beings. Now, of course, uh, as we grow up in Christ. We, we become partakers of the divine nature, yes, in Christ, who humbled himself to share in our humanity that we might share in his divinity. Um, but that's a very different way of being divinized uh, than this um, self-assertive and ultimately blasphemous approach, which is akin to the men of Babel, 
you know, the Tower of Babel story from sure. the book of Genesis that, you know, we all build a tower to the heavens and make a name for ourselves. And yes. by going up so yes. high, we will effectively make ourselves divine mm. by sheer willpower. And that, and that, of course, is relevant to Lewis's argument because the story of the Tower of Babel, which Lewis is referencing in the fictional counterpart to the abolition of man, that hideous strength, mm. the third book yeah. in his Ransom trilogy, Yes. That hideous strength, that phrase, that hideous strength, is a, is actually a quotation from a poem about the Tower of Babel. Oh, um, okay. It's a, a 16th century poem about the, the men of Babel who are trying to make a name for themselves. And this is precisely what, you know, what, what happens. But it's, it's to go back to the, the cover design, it's, it's easier to depict men becoming dogs than men becoming gods. Mm, um, mm. As regards the, the cover design of After Humanity, you'll see that it's got a picture of a man in standing in front of a waterfall. Oh, yes, yes. And that I was very pleased with the, the publisher's Word on Fire Academic with the picture they came up there, because on the one hand, it suggests the, uh, the, the sublime waterfall, the, the glorious cataract that Lewis opens his argument with. Is it truly sublime or is it only merely pretty? Mm -hmm. uh, can we say that? waterfalls have any kind of objective value so on the one hand it, it references that side of lewis's discussion but on the other there's just the, the the faint sense that this waterfall if the man isn't careful will sweep him away you know après le deluge and um, there will be no man left hmm. um, mm -hmm. and word on fire academic were able to persuade harper collins the publishers of the abolition of man to to release a new edition Yes. Of the abolition of man, with a with a matching photograph, a, right. a detail of that waterfall picture. Mm -hmm. So, um, if 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 our listeners go to the Word on Fire website and try to order the book, they'll get a free copy of the abolition of man with this matching cover. I'm oh, very pleased great. with how the design has come together. Yes, yes. Um, um, I was impressed with that as well. So, um, uh, that's really great and. Uh, the, those things are not insignificant. Um, the, the cover design and the artwork, and um, mm. well, I should have started with this question. So, what was it that prompted you to write this guide? I mean, it's really great because it has so much uh, background information of what was going on at the time of the writing and in Lewis's life and his interaction. But then you just walk through the book with commentary line by line, explaining things that people might not know because of gap in time or just understanding back background that Lewis was assuming. So it's a really great I mean, it really is a guide. You have it open and you have uh, the, the text of Lewis's book and you have one finger here and one finger here. And oh, oh, that's what he meant. And um, mm -hmm. so it's, you know, annotated really well. But something tells me that you you wanted to work on this project more than just, oh, I like this book and I want people to like it too. Yes. What prompted me to begin working on it initially was uh, was an invitation from someone to write a, a foreword to an edition of The Abolition of Man. Uh -huh. and, and as I began that foreword, it grew and it grew and it grew <laughs> until I thought, Golly, I'm basically writing an entire guide and commentary, um, <laughs> and by by a rather convoluted process, it ended up with with this publisher, Word on Fire Academic, um, and um, it's 
in a way, I think it's it's quite a good project for me to have done because I'm not a philosopher. I've never studied philosophy. I don't I don't teach philosophy. I, I studied English and theology as my for my two degrees, mm-hmm. and um, so therefore I'm I'm not a. It's not easy for me the abolition of man, and. I, fa- I, I have found in my own teaching experience that my students too, even if they're, you know, even if, if even if they're reasonably philosophically literate, they still find the abolition of man quite hard. Mm-hmm. So I've I've found in my own experience and in the experience of my students that the abolition of man resists uh, access in a certain way. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a it's a brilliant, profound work once you can get into it. Mm-hmm. But it's mm-hmm. it's not easy, mm. um, and I think you know the best the best teaching is done from those who have had to struggle with the issue themselves. Mm, good, um, and I I am just one such person, mm. um, and I've found that the abolition of man and indeed that hideous strength are incredibly nourishing and helpful works, and so I want to want to assist my readers in, in getting to a same, the same sort of a appreciation of, of them as I have managed to get to. Oh, that's really helpful. And, and I hope our listeners catch that so that you're writing this book, not from a posture of, come on, you guys, you should be able to read this. I mean, I read it. I understood <laughs> it here. Why can't you read it? <laughs> it yeah. doesn't come across the way at all, you know, but sometimes I think that's kind of, uh, I don't know, when, when, when someone recommends a difficult book, very often I think people just assume, oh, they must find that easy. And I don't think I'll ever be able to read the book. But you just identified yourself as a fellow struggler. Um, Are you reminded? I I, I love Lewis's introduction uh, to uh, reflections on the Psalms. And in that introduction, he says, I'm not a Hebrew scholar. I'm a fellow student. And perhaps that's how I can help more. The the fellow student can help more because he knows less. <laughs> I yes, love that. Abs- yes, yes. He he goes on and says, I, I write for the unlearned about things in which I am myself unlearned. <laughs> and yes, that describes my uh, situation vis-a-vis the abolition of man uh, very nicely. Oh, good. We're really grateful that you are tuning into our podcast. Hope you'll consider uh, looking at our other podcast, Side B, and see the kinds of resources that we provide there. And if these podcasts are helpful for you in your own personal walk with the Lord, please tell others. Share about it on social media platforms. Uh, We'd love for the word to get out and for you to give us some good reviews on all those places online where lots and lots of people hear about us. Well, well, two more uh, things here before we close. Um, he has this whole big section about the Tao. Um, it, uh, readers, I think, for the first time will see it and want to pronounce it the Tao, but it's pronounced Tao. Um, I, I think some Christians may get alarmed by that. It sounds like, ooh, is he is he sneaking in um, Eastern uh, religion in here? Um, and what he's saying is, I, I think he's saying that this Tao is a statement of truths that all people should acknowledge. But can, can you help us a little bit more about that whole thing about the Tao so people don't get to that page in the book and say, oh, no, I didn't, I didn't know Lewis was a heretic. Um, so <laughs> help us there, please. Yes, I will. And um, 
Um, the Tao is a term from Confucian philosophy, and by it, Lewis is referring to this great fund or reservoir of, of moral law, um, which he regards as objective and universal. It's a kind of moral ecology that we all uh, exist within. We didn't create it. We didn't invent it. We've discovered it, and we can't get out of it. Um, and he uses this Chinese term for a couple of reasons. One is to remind his readers that he's he's not just making an apologetic for Christianity. What he's doing in The Abolition of Man is advancing a philosophical case. He's not making a theological argument. He's not getting as far as a belief in God, nor let alone a belief in Jesus Christ. All he's trying to do is establish this philosophical groundwork for a definition of what it means to be a moral human being. Uh, and so by going all the way to the East, to Chinese philosophy, um, he sort of underscores that point. He's not, he's not arguing for a Western view of reality, let alone a Christian view of re reality, though of course it's compatible with the Christian view of reality. Um, he's arguing purely from philosophy. Um, there are other reasons too why he uses uh, the Tao. Um, one of them has to do with the fact that, and this I go into in the guide, that, that his implicit target behind a lot of what he says is a man called I.A. Richards, Iva Richards. Um, and um, Richards had had a great interest in China and all things Chinese. And so I think this is... Lewis's choice to use the word Tao is a sort of implicit dig at Richards. Um, Richards is mentioned in the course of the abolition of man, um, but, he, but not much is explained about him. Uh, and this is one of the things that I learnt most about in the course of researching this book, the, the importance of Richards to Lewis's thought in this connection. Um, Lewis is taking pot shots at Richards all over the place, not just in The Abolition mm. of Man, but in a lot of his other writings too. And so I have a picture of I.A. Richards. And um, I also, <laughs> I quote a very amusing um, episode when they met in Oxford. Um, Richards was hosted by Lewis after, it must have been after some debate, I suppose. Um, I'm not quite clear what, what the actual occasion was, but Richards was staying at Magdalen College and Lewis had forgotten to find him a room. Um, but he, he he discovered that one of his colleagues at Magdalen was away for the night, so that so he said, "Oh, oh, R Richards, you can stay in Collingwood's room instead." Oh, but there's nothing for you to read. Wait there, I'll come straight back with something for you to read. And then Lewis pops back from his own room with a copy of Richards's own book, The Principles <laughs> of Literary Criticism. Here's something that should put you to sleep, Lewis says. <laughs> but Richards couldn't get to sleep because the margins of the copy of his own book were full of Lewis's own biting disagreements. <laughs> yes, I saw that in, in the section with the pictures. Um, uh, yeah, sometimes Lewis could be quite pointed. Um, <laughs> yes, so, yes. Um, well, um uh, I, I want to finish with the title of the book. Um, what, why, why did you land on after humanity? Three reasons. Uh, one is, as we've already suggested, that 
um, the the uh, the eradication of a belief in the objectivity of value destroys our humanity. And Lewis himself uses the term post-humanity in the course of his mm. argument. Mm. So it's a gesture towards that. The second reason is that um, I'm I'm nodding to a great work of philosophy called After Virtue by mm-hmm. by Alistair MacIntyre, which, if you like, is a is a is the same set of arguments as Lewis's, but just done at greater length and in in more depth. Um, and indeed, I have a photograph of Alistair MacIntyre in the photo gallery, and I quote from After Virtue a few times uh, where mm-hmm. it seems to be relevant to Lewis's case. And the third thing I'm trying to do um, is, um, you know, because the word after has two meanings. It can mean post. It can mean, you know, subsequent to. But but you can also talk about going after humanity, oh, you know, seeking, seeking after, searching good. after the true humanity. Mm. Um, and so right at the end, I point out how Lewis's appendix to the book finishes with a quotation from John's Gospel. Jesus's words, unless a seed, a, gra- a grain of wheat die, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. If uh, if you lose your life, you will find it. That's the very final quotation in the Abolition of Man, in the appendix. Um, and that's an implicit uh, acknowledgement on Lewis's part that his argument is really Christian, even though it's made from purely philosophical premises, his Christianity peeps through at that point, as it were. And it's a, it's a nod to the reader. It'll let the reader understand, really. If, if you're looking for the place where um, the chest, this moral chest, has, has reached its most perfect development, you need to look at Jesus. Uh, it, it is to Jesus that we should look if we are seeking after humanity. Mm, that's great. That's great. And and I think that that may be the best place for us to bring our conversation to a close, although hopefully not an end. I, I look forward to talking about this some more, maybe uh, when we're there in Oxford sometime. Um, mm. I know you said you'd like to come visit our headquarters. I, I I like that idea, but I like the idea of us coming over to Oxford. That's more exciting, I think, for me on, on my <laughs> side. Um, but, but yes, this book, um, and your guide to help us really understand all of it, um, can prepare us not just for making critical arguments against the way things are going, but also to make a very positive statement about how wonderful it is to be a human being, what, what dignity there is in being a person created in the image of God. And, and we're not on the same level with dogs, no matter how well we dress them up. Um, and there's something really beautiful about having both head and heart, um, head and chest. And so it can it can point people to a, a much, much better alternative. And I, I think those are going to be great opportunities for us in our time, because I think people are going to see where these despairing things go. And yet they're going to say, but but why? Why does why is there something inside crying out for more or better or fuller? So um, may it be that your book would equip Christians, not not just to understand Lewis better, <laughs> but to understand our world better, our time better, mm. and to have an evangelistic passion the way Lewis did. Um, and may it be that God would use us in that way. Do you have any final comments that you'd like to 
say before we close? Only to uh, you know underline and second and emphasize the the the, 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 the very great value of what you've just said. That yes, uh, the whole point of this book is is not to uh, fixate upon the text of the abolition of man, nor to fixate upon C.S. Lewis, but to to get clear in our minds the importance of the objectivity of value um, as a as an anthropological truth, um, as a way of uh, enabling rational moral discourse so that we and our fellow human beings, be they Christians or not, can have some sort of um, baseline on which to thrash out our differences through, you know, a peaceful uh, encounter, not through violent assertion of our will over someone else's will. Um, Because, I mean, although, as I pointed out, Lewis is not uh, basing his argument in the abolition of man on on Christian terminology, it's entirely compatible with a Christian understanding of of the conscience and of of the of the image of God in man that we do know right and wrong. This is this is part of how we're hardwired as as human beings, and and indeed, you you don't have to be a Christian to have a conscience. As St. Paul says in the letter to the Romans, you know, even the Gentiles without the law are a law unto themselves as their mm-hmm. conscience now convicts them and now acquits them. So there are people of goodwill, you know, non-Christians of goodwill that we hopefully can interact with more intelligently and more, more fully uh, once we've got some of these ideas securely in place. Great, great. Well, Michael Ward, you have served us well. Um, in this podcast and in writing this book and in in all your writing. So we're very, very grateful. Um, To our listeners, I want to close and say we hope that this podcast and all of our resources at the C.S. Lewis Institute um, will help you love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind, and to proclaim him um, as the way, the truth, and the life. Thanks for listening to Questions That Matter. You can find out more about the topics that we address in the show notes. And uh, if you have questions or feedback on this episode or any episode, really, you can reach me at questionsthatmatter at cslewisinstitute.org. I know that's a ridiculous email address, but I'll say it again. Questionsthatmatter at cslewisinstitute.org. If you enjoyed this or you're benefiting from listening to these, please subscribe to the podcast, share the information with your friends, uh, let people know through your social network uh, that this is a podcast worth listening to. Thanks. Thanks.